Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. So I'm starting a sermon series today and uh, it's called Most Tatted. Some of you guys are like, what, what does that even mean? Don't worry, I'm going there. Uh, I... I, one day, I remember I was thinking about how I have a lot of friends. I have a friend that, uh, from high school who is one of my very close friends. We're not as close anymore because we live farther away. But I'll never forget, he came up to me one day and he said, Micah, what's one of your favorite verses? And I gave him a few, but the one that he really liked was First Peter um, 2, you know, for your royal uh, priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people, set apart, you know, all this stuff. And he, he decides, okay, well, I'm just going to go get that tatted on my chest. All the way across, not like size 10 font, but like 14 to 18. Like, I mean, it's like, he's like, gets the whole thing tatted. I said, wow, that's awesome, Bobby. Uh, What does it say? And he didn't know. (laughs) See, he liked what I knew. And he asked me what one of my favorite was, gets it tatted. And then I'm like, okay, recite what's tatted on you. And he was like, okay, I, I don't necessarily know about that. But more than that, it was interesting. I was sitting in my room thinking about how many people have tattooed on them Jeremiah 29, 11 and Philippians 4, 13 and John 3, 16. And you can, we kind of have a list of them. And so what I want to do is I want to add context to the most used tattoos. Some of you guys in this room are like, well, I have all three of those tattooed on me right now. I have one. How many of you have a tattoo of one of those three that I just said on you? Oh, they're not raising their hand because they're mad at me. They're like, I'm not raising my hand. You're going to ask me to recite it. And I don't know. Austin, don't you have one like on your forehead right here? No. Yeah, you know, Austin's the couple that moved with us from Michigan. It's our goddaughter and she hates me and just gets it and gnaws at my soul. Um... So now I just shout him out in embarrassing ways on stage as like a, just to process my pain. Anyway, most tatted. Today we're going to be talking about Jeremiah 29, 11, And specifically, if I give you a subtitle, it's a plan within despair. A plan within despair. I remember a few years ago I was um, on a road trip. And at that time, I was a drummer. I grew up playing drums. And at that time, I was, I was drumming with some friends. And we were playing kind of at different colleges all over the west side of Michigan, into Chicago, and down into Indiana. Now, I'm not a touring musician. Don't anybody think like, wow, he's crazy good. I'm definitely not. Um, but at that time, I was playing a lot. And I remember I was driving the van, and we had the, the trailer hooked up. And we got like three hours to our destination. And I'm driving, and all of a sudden, a flat tire happens. And immediately I'm like, okay, well, that's fine because I should probably have a jack and I got the tools. And, but the problem was is the flat tire was on, was on the trailer. So I went and then I found out when I got to the flat tire, tire on our trailer that I realized that the lug nuts were a different size than the ones on the car. And then I realized I didn't have a jack. So here I am on the side of the road and it's a Sunday and I'm literally like, okay, we can't move. What are we going to do? Because there's no tow shops open. I don't have the right tools and I am in the middle of nowhere. Where I am in Michigan, there's kind of this stretch from like Kalamazoo all the way until uh, Kalamazoo all the way to Hartford where it's like no man's land where like only three people live. It's like a 60-mile stretch, and I'm exaggerating, but it definitely feels like that. 
And I remember I'm sitting there and I'm look, and I'm, I mean, I'm with one of my very close friends, even to this day, John Paul, and we're looking at each other and I'm like, okay, we don't have tools to fix the tire. It's Sunday, so we can't get anybody to come out here. We have to be somewhere within the next two and a half hours to play a show for tonight. And I'm literally thinking to myself, what are we going to do? We're in the middle of nowhere. And in my, it literally, this is, is going to sound hilarious, but me and John Paul, we just decided, okay, we're going to start hiking through the woods looking for houses. This is, this is like borderline how a horror movie story like starts, right? So we start hiking through the woods and we're looking and I see a house and I go up and I knock on the door and they like open the door and it's like one of those where they open they're like, what are, who are you? It's like, didn't have a mullet at the time, but definitely looked a little sketch. And I, I like looked, I like looked and I'm like, hey, we broke down like a quarter mile. We just hiked through the woods to your house. I was wondering if you have like a crescent wrench set and a, and a jack. Well, we have a crescent wrench set. And I'm like, okay, great. So what happens is we're, I get the crescent wrench set, but we don't have a jack. So what do we do? We keep hiking through the woods. Get to the next house. Hey, do you have a jack for your car? They're once again looking at me like super sketched out. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, we've got a jack. And so we, f- we literally hike through the woods. We get all the tools from doors, from knocking on them. Get back to the car, change the tire out, fix it all up. Then hike back through the woods, drop off the tools and keep running and make it to the show on time. <laughs> but in the beginning, when that tire popped, there was two choices. We could sit here. Pay a bunch of money and wait for 16 hours for AAA. Or we could do the best we can with what we have. And trust that something good can come from it. And whether we want to admit this or not, this is life sometimes. You're going through life and you may not have a physical tire pop, but you got a tire popping in one of these areas where you are like, man, this is the last thing I want right now. It's a disruption. It's something I didn't see coming. It's something I want no part of. And the Lord's challenging you to do things that are maybe a little bit more unconventional, or should I say stretch you in order to get your life back on track and the choice is going to be yours. See, that's the premise of Jeremiah 29, 11, because once again, I love it because once again, everybody's got it tatted and it's like, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and give you hope in the future. And it's literally written to a people in captivity, enslaved by a foreign nation. It's like, how many of us are like, yes, God, I want you to prosper me, but can you also enslave me at the same time? Can you put me in bondage, take me from my homeland, burn it and desecrate the temples, and then ultimately you're like, yes, God, give me your best. But this is the context of that verse, and what we're going to do is we're going to dissect it, and mainly what I want to talk about today is how to make sure our detours don't turn from despair into desperation. Because what I see a lot of the times is people who are in seasons where they're despairing and then they get desperate and in getting desperate for control and for an outcome they want, they circumvent what God is doing in their character and then ultimately it gets worse. And so what I want to do is I want to talk today about this passage of scripture And I want to ask us, before we even get into this passage, what happens when your plans have not worked out? What happens when your expectations have been not, have been not met so much so that it starts to slip you into a state of being that in all honesty, 
you're not proud of. And so what I want to do is I want to challenge us through the pretense of what Jeremiah 29, 11 stands for. So let's read Jeremiah 29, 1 through verse 14. It says this. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile to Babylon. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Once again, if somebody showed up to America today, over through the country, picked all of the Christian people up, transplanted them to their nation... And then the most godly man on the face of the earth, which is Jeremiah at this time, you're literally waiting to hear word from him. And he sends a letter and everybody gathers around. Okay, our prophets heard us. He knows what's going on. And the word is, hey, build a house and plant a garden. I would be pretty upset. I'm getting like heated thinking about how upset I would be literally in this moment. But let's keep reading because it gets even better. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become fathers of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give daughters to your husbands. That they may bear sons and daughters. And multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city you have been sent into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare is your welfare. Once again, Jeremiah 29, 11. We know a lot of that verse, but we, I'm challenging context today. Because many of us, we want the promises of God, the plans of God, but at the same time in this setting, would you want the promise and plan of God knowing what you're facing, knowing what you've gone through, knowing what you're going to go through? See, this is where I think that the crux of Christianity is today, is we want the plans and the promises of God as long as they feel good, look good, make us look good and feel good, and then add to us looking good and feeling good. Jeremiah 29, 11, we're easy to say it, but to live it in this context, hey, think about it. He's adding time frames. Take wives, have sons, then marry them. And ha- I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, how long is this going to last? Because if I'm married having kids and my kids is married having kids and hold on, that sounds like a couple generations and this ain't Jerusalem. This is Babylon. This isn't the holy city. Let's keep reading. It says this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. What's going on is actually, if you research the passages preceding this, is Jeremiah is the only prophetic voice that literally he's going to kings, the king of Judah, and he's saying, lay down your arms because God has sent this king against you and he's going to uproot you, but you're going to survive. You're going to get through it. And all the other ones are like, we're God's holy city. Let's fight. Let's dig in. God can do it. And so Jeremiah is saying, hey, I want you to believe me that you're going to be in bondage. You're going to be captive. I want you to believe me. And the people have a choice. Are you going to believe you're going to be in bondage and a captive, but don't worry, God's good? Or are you going to believe God can overthrow them? God can draw you out. These people are wicked, absolvent. 
What am I trying to say? There's one prophecy that's easy to receive and there's a whole nother that you have to have a soil in your soul to receive. Jeremiah, the voice that nobody wants to listen to because they always know he's right. And I want to challenge you on this. I think there's even people in our lives right now that we don't want to listen to because we know that they'll speak truth. And what we don't realize is if we don't listen to the ones who will speak truth directly to the circumstance we are in and we choose the prophecies that we want to hear, we will end up in a place we don't want to be. And what I mean by that is Jeremiah, what you actually see is the kings that obeyed him and laid down their arms were taken into exile and then their people returned later on. The kings that did not lay down their arms were destroyed. But God could have done both, but what he was doing was something new, something different. Let's continue to read. It says this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years... Once again, it's like, next time you see Jeremiah 29, 11, just look at somebody and be like, oh, you want to be in bondage for 70 years? <laughs> you guys are laughing. I know it's a joke, but it is kind of funny if you think about it. It's like, God, I know the plans I have for you to prosper you. So, so you believe God's going to prosper you if for 70 years you're held captive? Man, that's a whole nother metric to start measuring your faith by. That's some spiritual maturity is God... I know the plans you have to prosper me and to give me hope and a future, even in the face of being a prisoner in a foreign land for 70 years, I trust you. That's some context. Let's keep reading. It says this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you future and a hope. Now, when we've read what we've read now, getting to this place, doesn't that promise sound hollow? I want to actually speak to that for a second because I believe there are probably some people in this room who the promises of God sound hollow. And this sermon is for you. That is, the promises of God are sounding hollow to you. What's happening is you're slipping from this place of despair, which it's okay to have these, this, these moments of despair. Two-thirds of the Psalms laments, crying out to God for the circumstances David finds himself in. But to slip into desperation gets you in a place in your soul where you're wrestling for control from God. So what I'm trying to challenge you within this for is because I think a lot of us, we feel the words are hollow because the outcomes haven't been what we wanted them to be. So we're doubting God's goodness because the only rationale we have for good is when life is flawless. Let me introduce to you a new definition of good is when you ride the wave of good and bad and you get out the other side over and over again and you discover faithfulness. A God who has been faithful through the storms and through the trials. A God who has been faithful in the peaks and in the valleys. A God who has been good even when it is not good. But then you've gotten through the bad and realized he's good. See, what I'm trying to say is this. Is what we've been doing is taking the circumstance and characteristic of Western goodness. And projecting it on a God who says, no, obedience is what produces good. Faithfulness is what produces good. Rhythms, patterns, lifestyle, rooted disciplines, a disciplined learner is what produces good. And it's not good as in the bank account is big and the house is bigger. It's good 
When everything feels bad and you know you have one thing in you that will always be good and you just hold as hard as you can to it. That is good. So let's continue to read. It says this. Verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes, will gather you from the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place where I sent you into exile. In summary, Jeremiah 29, 11, you're in exile, forced to another country, and God says he sent you there. Imagine right now if you had the revelation that you're in a season that is bad, hard, and one you don't want any part of. What if I told you that God sent you there? How would that contort your mind? And, and I really, here's the deal. We've just, in an age of deconstructionism, in an age of which we're all questioning the validity of the truth of the gospel, we have to sit with these weighty matters sometimes. That there is character development in every season. It is just if we are able to see it. Proverbs. To the wise man, every bitter thing tastes sweet. Think about that. Bitter has sweetness. Difficult has character development. To where it shaves the edges off of the razor of seasons that cut into us. To when... All of a sudden, the next season comes around. It's not as sharp. It doesn't cut as deep. And it doesn't wound us to our core. See, this is what the fallen nature of man is. Is if you don't believe that the enemy is coming for you, you're deceived by the deceiver. I love when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness because what happens at the very end is it says that Jesus was sent into the wilderness by the Spirit and he left the wilderness in the power of the Spirit is missed the enemy it says at the very end he left him for a more opportune time see a lot of us were like man I've conquered the devil and the devil's like yeah I'm waiting for a more opportune time no I've conquered I'm so strong in my faith yeah it's okay I'll wait I'll take my time I'll wait And so I want to challenge us within this reality because when we have this idea of Jeremiah 29 of 11 of God, you're good and you're faithful and you have hope in a future. And at the same time, don't realize that it's written to a people in exile forced into another country. And God literally says, I put you there. What does that do to your theology? Hopefully it doesn't shake it, but it should shape it. Build houses and lives and families. You're not getting out anytime soon. What does that do to your theology of a God who every time we say something, he should be acting on our behalf instead of what if we served a God who wants you to develop into his likeness? And from that place, we start to realize that our asks look different. Our lives look different. The people around us look different. The way we talk, the way we interact, the way we view people looks different. Seek the welfare of the ones who've conquered and destroyed your country. Anyone saying I'm rescuing you is lying. You're in bondage for 70 years. 
But I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper. To give hope in a future. See, when we hear that statement at the end of the statements before it, do we believe? Imagine somebody coming up to you today and saying, I'm taking you for 70 years to a foreign land where you will not be able to do what you want. You will do whatever the the kingdom you're in wants you to do. And just so you know, their welfare is your welfare. So you better submit and support them. But don't worry. I'm good and have hope. See, it would be really easy. And this is what I'm trying to get at today. It would be really easy for this to turn from despair into desperation. Because despair is this moment of being low. Desperation is we want to control the outcome and the time frame of how long that low period lasts and get out of it as quick as we can. I guarantee Job had that same feeling. Scholars believe it was anywhere from six months to two years that he dealt with not hearing from God and just waiting. One of my favorite images, boils breaking out on his skin. He's breaking clay pots on the ground and scraping the boil. It's in scripture as it's the only relief he can have. Think about that. And he's not doubting and walking away and cursing God. What I want to challenge you today on is how do you make sure your detours don't turn to desperation? How do we make sure that detours in life don't take us from desperation or from despair, this moment where there's weightiness and a recognition that it's difficult into desperation in which we're reaching for anything that can numb us, get us out, or pull us up apart from him? So the first one is this. You may feel like you're in captivity, but never believe you're captive. A captive is when you've been encircled and then enslaved to the anxieties of circumstance. You ever seen someone take on the identity of their problem until it starts to redefine who they are? You know, what's so sad to me is when you see people go through a difficult situation and circumstance and you see them a year or two later and you realize they now are that difficult situation and circumstance. They have now been so redefined because of the difficulty that they are not just a captive. They are in captivity forever. Until they wake up to the realization that we serve a good God and we continue to pursue his goodness even in the badness and wrongness of this world. And trust that whether it's on this side of eternity or the other one, he'll make all things right. The opposite of kingdom prosperity is spiritual victim mentality. Kingdom prosperity is God, I trust that you are in control, that you will make things right, and that if I'm putting you first in my life, discipline, thoughts, deeds, patterns, if I'm putting you first in this place, that that ultimately you will get me through. Spiritual victim mentality is when we, instead of looking at the enemy who rules the fallen world, and not looking at him and saying, you know what, I speak the promise of God, I stand promise of God. I stand on the presence of God. I go in proximity to God. I stay rooted. I stay grounded. I stay focused. See, what the enemy wants you to do is blame God. And you've heard, it, heard me say this before, but I'll never forget the first time somebody asked me, why do bad things happen to good people? I'll never forget it because I never thought of the answer. And it's funny because in scripture it says, don't worry, 
you know, when you open your mouth, I'll give you the words to say. And I'll never forget. I opened my mouth and I said this, and it's stuck with me ever since. I said, the worst thing happened to the most perfect person who ever lived, and we're called to live in his example. See, it's so easy for us to frame a a theology of, of prosperity, health, and wealth and not realize that the enemy wants us to do these things so then when he attacks them, he attacks our ideology of who the Father is. Spiritual victim mentality is when he can get you to look at God and say, I'm a victim of you. Not just somebody who lives in a world that's broken and fallen. The second thing is this. When where you are isn't where you want to be. Build, plant, produce, repeat. Until God's timing takes you to where you want to be. There's a difference between what's easiest, what's fastest, and what's right in the season that you're in. Your faithfulness will always be more important to God than any talent you could use for Him or platform you could have for Him. What I'm saying to you is this. The first advice He gives before He gives the promise, remember what He said? He literally says, you're going to be in exile. There will not be anybody to get you out. Don't listen to anybody else. Build houses. Plant gardens. Have families. Repeat. Build. Plant. Produce. Repeat. Build. Plant. What I'm trying to say to you today is this. is A lot of the times what we're trying to build, plant, and produce is things that are completely outside of the kingdom. And we wonder why we have no true north in our pursuit of it. See, there's a cap, they're literally captive in Babylon. Babylon is like, it is, I'm just going to say, it's not a righteous nation. What is the advice? Build, plant, produce, repeat, over and over. And what's funny is the circumstance of the building, planting, and producing is not a good circumstance. I mean, think about it, right? It's like, hey, there's way more healthy environments to build, plant, and produce in than this one. But that's what character development is. Is when you make a decision to build, to plant, and to produce in circumstances and situations that aren't conducive for it. And I would say this. Your spiritual maturity is found when you can build, plant, and produce in circumstances when others wouldn't or can't. And I think a lot of the times what happens is is we are looking for perfectly healthy environments to plant, produce. We're looking for everything to be symmetric and awesome and shiny and flashy and feel good. Jeremiah 29, 11 is a great promise written to a broken people in a worse situation than really we find in Scripture for promises. Build, plant, produce, repeat. If I was to give you my honest assessment for fulfillment, it would be building something you're proud of, planting something that helps others, and producing something you never thought you would be able to. Fulfillment is when everybody else wouldn't have done what you did and you did it and you look back at the goodness of God and what he did to a circumstance that you never thought he could do. And I'm going to read this again because I think today, the day and age today that we're in is people are craving fulfillment. 
something that matters, something that makes a difference, something that gets us to believe that we still can change the world, that that wasn't just an elementary school question that we could never reach in maturity, but rather what would it mean for us to find true fulfillment? I'm going to tell you it's to build something you're proud of. Building something you're proud of is not one year, it's not two years, it's not three minutes. It's over and over and over and over and over. Building something you're proud of, planting something that helps others, plant gardens that nourish those around you and produce something that you wouldn't have thought you would have been able to in the circumstances that you were in. See, that's when you find out what true goodness is, is when God confronts the reality you placed on him and you live another reality and you realize, wow, at his feet truly is everything that I need. And I want to challenge you today in this because I believe for a lot of us, we are craving a fulfillment that matters, but we're not building, planting or producing anything. We're sitting here and we're like, God, I come every week and I'm just scraping by and building, planting and producing. All that is, is how you live your life. Are you in your word? Are you in prayer? Do you practice Sabbath? Are you in community? Do you sacrifice for your neighbors? These types of things are not just these, these emblems that have stood for millennia. They're foundational truths that have stood for hundreds of generations of believers. It's not different for us today. I would just say the Babylon we're in is technology. I'll get into that another time. But Desperation comes when you're not at the destination you thought at the time you wanted to be. The greatest struggle you will face following God is if you trust his timing above your own. I'm going to tell you this. The toughest verse it was for me to read in that passage was, hey, you're going to be here for 70 years. You want to talk about a character test? 70 years. You want to talk about, God, how, how am I supposed to live for you in this place? 70 years. Plant. Produce. Repeat. 70 years. Just seek their welfare. 70 years. What I'm trying to say is confront the timing you have in your mind of a God who's just this instantaneous thing that we grab. And it's so hard to do in a culture where literally we Amazon Prime things and they get there in four hours. So first thing when I moved here from Michigan, couldn't believe it. I'm like, I have four hour delivery? I am now enslaved to that. (laughs) What I'm trying to say to you today is this. The time frames we place on God are typically the first things he's going to confront. The time frames we place on God is typically the very first things that he's going to say, okay, I'm going to confront these and make sure that your idolatry is not controlled vicariously through me. What I mean by that is, God, will you do this? And then it's like in the back of our minds, we have a time frame of how long we can hold on. And God's typically a lot longer than that. You know what's fascinating to me? I'm going to be 100% honest with you. In my faith journey, the only thing 
that has so far blown my expectation, like so far out of, is this church. And I feel like the Lord told me this early on in our journey here, and me and my wife have processed it, because we are always been systems, processes, plans, really owning things well. And then all of a sudden we planted a church and we went in, in three weeks, our two-year plan was gone. And I felt the weight of God, I had this plan, and God essentially saying, no, I had this plan. But also say that there's spiritual maturity in that place of where we've served God so faithfully that the only time he goes over, it causes our attention to change and say, all right, God, I'll press in more for you. See, I think some of us have unrealistic expectations where I've just served God faithfully for so long that whatever my hand has found to do, I'll just do it with all my might and trust that when he gives me things that are outside what these hands can handle, it's because his hands are right behind them. And I want to challenge you today because I think for some of us, we have such time frames on God and really that's the source of all your frustration if you think about it. Why isn't it going faster? Why aren't you doing what I want? Why hasn't it happened exactly how I needed it to? And once again, I don't know. But I can tell you if you're faithful, there'll come a day when you do. The longest way around someone, some, the longest way around is sometimes the shortest way home. C.S. Lewis said that. And spiritual maturity is I'm willing to do the boring, the routine, and the costly things repeatedly with no promise of an end, but a belief in his plan for my life. Spiritual maturity is I'm willing to do the boring, the routine, the costly things repeatedly with no promise of anything at the end, but just a belief he has a plan for my life. The last thing is this. Sometimes God will take you backward in order to remind you what forward in him looks like. Your prosperity will always be tied to your proximity to Jesus. The best promise in Jeremiah 29.11 is not Jeremiah 29.11. It's this. Jeremiah 29, verse 12. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will, be, you will find me. I will be found by you. I will end your captivity and I will restore your fortunes. The best promise is not just the good, faithful, thank you God, give it to me when I want. The best promise is when we pray and he listens. The best promise is when we're wholeheartedly following him, we're also finding him. The best promise is he will end captivity and restore our fortune. These are the best promises, but they're rooted in something we sometimes do. And that's pray, be wholehearted. Pursue things that we sometimes do prioritize, sometimes stay committed, sometimes stay faithful. What I'm trying to say to you today is if you want that Jeremiah 29 11, there's a lot more to it. And then a lot more to it is sometimes you got to go backwards in order to go forwards, you've got to have proximity in order to truly sense the problem. And prosperity is not the financial. The financial is a byproduct of proximity to him. 
It's a principle and a disposition in which we live as godly stewards, and then God trusts us with the stewardship of heavenly resource. And what I'm trying to say in closing is this today, is if you're somebody who it feels like you've been encircled and enslaved, you feel like you're in a season of desperation and despair, you feel like you're a captive, and more than that, you don't know if you're ever going to get out, that he has a plan. And that plan, he knows he has one for you. And it's to prosper you and give you hope in the future. Let's stand to our feet. If you've been here before, you know we have a practice of just reading a prayer over the people related to this sermon. So whatever your posture for receiving is, I pray that this prayer meets you in the deepest parts of who you are, strengthens you in your spirit and soul, and keeps you in the way and the light of Him. God, today we trust you. When it doesn't look like what we thought, the time frame isn't what we thought, and the circumstances seem the furthest from your goodness, we trust you. That even in the desperation and despair of this world, you hold it all, and you hold us. You hold me. That you see my problem, you know my pain. And today I choose to believe that from that place, you'll provide. Remind me today I am not my provider. I am not the one who opens the doors. I am not the one with the best plans for my life. You are, and you always have been. You have known the deepest desires of me, and you have heard the deepest cries of my soul. Your word says... When your children ask for bread, you don't give them a stone. And when your children ask for fish, you won't give them a steak. So today, we submit to what your hands have given. Trusting it is you that knows our soul's sustenance. We are not captives even when we feel encircled. And we are okay with the shortcut being a long way if it means submission to your plan. Take us back if it's how we must go forward. Keep us still to plant, build, and produce. Even if it's in a place we never thought we would be. Oh God, today we trust you will always have a plan within the despair. In Jesus' name, amen.